Broadsheet Radio. I can't speak. Hello, everyone, and welcome to an episode of Shared History. The breakfast of history. Oh, how appropriate, because we're recording uh, in one of our morning slots this morning. Yeah, so good. I already had breakfast, but I will gladly eat a second. I'm a hobbit. We are, we are heart healthy. We are the best thing to start with, to start your day with. Um, probably the most important meal of your podcast, uh, charcuterie. Yeah. As your your podcasts spread, we are the most important, and we're proud we're proud of it. Um, I I love breakfast. Controversial opinion? No. I know people who skip breakfast, and I don't understand it. All of the best foods are breakfast foods, and I will fight you. Weirdly, though, I feel like breakfast food is best as dinner, though sometimes. Well, breakfast food cannot be contained. It, no. it it can do whatever it wants. It has that permission. This isn't about breakfast. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our guest. You've been hearing your whole life that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. We're not going to pile on with our breakfast shame. Uh, our guest this week, I'm so excited, is Felicia Singh, a teacher, the proud daughter of working class immigrants and a workers' rights advocate. Uh, Felicia is running for New York City Council with priorities of fully funding schools, supporting small businesses and workers, climate and environmental resilience, and accessible transportation. Her district, District 32, is the last remaining Republican-held seat in Queens, despite Queens being a majority Democratic district. Felicia is running a campaign rooted in organizing, committed to centering the most marginalized voices in the district, and she's been endorsed by a coalition of over 60 community and grassroots organizations, unions, elected officials, including Senator Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Senator Kristen Gillibrand, and Queens Borough President Donovan Richards, as well as New York Working Families Party, Labor Strong 2021 Coalition, and Sunrise Movement New York City. Felicia, welcome. Thank Ooh. you. What an introduction. I know. I was Every gonna... time I hear... Every time I hear my introduction, I'm almost like, who is that? She sounds so accomplished. <laughs> Definitely one of the more most impressive intros we've had. I uh, oft I often cherry pick things. Like if somebody sends me like a more uh like more points to introduce them, like we'll cherry pick like we'll do the highlights, right. but I couldn't choose highlights because it's all so impressive. Also, we're recording uh, at time of recording in mid to late October. Um, yeah. Kristen Gillibrand's uh, endorsement is new, too, right? That's that's yes, hot and that's fresh correct. off the presses right that's now. That's hot and fresh right <laughs> off the press. Right. That's exactly correct. Um, really honored to be on your on your podcast today. Thank you. And I look forward to our conversation. Uh, but hi, listeners. I'm Felicia. I am running in the last Republican district in Queens, and it's quite a race. It's incredibly competitive. It's hard. It's pushing folks in so many different directions. Um, and this could already is a historical race. Um, it will continue to be historical, hopefully with our victory November 2nd. Um, 
but I'm excited to talk about history and, and, and really talk about making it. We're going to talk about history. We're going to make some history. Uh, a difficult, like a, a complicated race already. I can't imagine that campaigning in a pandemic has made things any easier. <clears throat> you know, I'm really, I, I would say despite it still being a pandemic, it's not as bad when people had to run in 2020. And it was like right in the middle of the pandemic where you, it was like, you were not allowed to knock on doors. Like, how were you able to meet, reach voters? And I think that taught, that taught us how to be creative as well. But we are doing the knocking on the doors. We're talking to a lot of people. So a lot about um, us being careful and, and cautious is like still maintaining that six feet of distance. And then I personally get tested like every two weeks, if not every week, um, because we're still in the middle of pandemic. But it is it does have its challenges sometimes. That's a lot of nose swabs. Yeah, I've had a lot of nose <laughs> I've had a lot of nose swabs <laughs> and it's not any better anytime every time like recently I've been getting these PCR ones because that's like readily available I'm like where are all the rapid tests and it's just like I sneeze every time and I'm like dude this is just I'm sorry I'm sorry <laughs> I hadn't I hadn't gotten a nasal test in a while because the there's a I'm very fortunate that there is a completely free testing facility across the street from my office. Yeah. Uh, and so every time that I've had to be on set or had to travel, I've gone and gotten tested. Uh, typically, you're required to for for uh, most shoots if they're following union rules. But I'll uh, I'll go in and they always are like, okay, you want the PCR? Do you want the swab or do you want the uh, saliva test? And I'm like, who is oh. choosing the swab when given the option? <laughs> Who is I didn't know there's that? a saliva test. What? Yeah. You're like, wait, no one told me this? No one's ever <laughs> given me that option. I'm telling you, the uncle at Liberty Plaza in Ozone Park knows my nose like nobody. Else. <laughs> <laughs> Homie, he sees me from across the street. I'll be canvassing. And he's like, Felicia! <laughs> Felicia! And then I That's... cross the street. I'm like, let me just go get tested. Yeah. That's uh that's gonna be a new like post-pandemic idiom like instead yeah. of oh i know i'm like the back of my hand it's oh i know i'm like the inside of my nose right right exactly <laughs> i'm intimately familiar with the inside of my nose it's gonna be like uh if you ever worked at a coffee shop and there are regulars you'll you'll see like down the street you just start making their order this applies to not coffee shops that's just the only like touchstone i have for it and you just like start making their order it'd be like that but i don't know if you don't need to specially prep uh, nasal swabs for anyone. Right, right, exactly. Only uh, the softest swab for Ms. Singh. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's her special her special order. <laughs> wow, the campaign's really changed, Felicia. She requests the softest of swabs whenever she gets tested. The Charmin so of swabs. <laughs> oh gosh. That's right. You know what? If I'm gonna get privileges, I might as it might as well be that. <laughs> that's it. That's like that's all it has on your writer is just. just I don't want to jump in the front of lines. I don't yeah. want whatever. I, just I don't want, want only the green M and M's. I just right. want the softest swab possible. Exactly. Exactly. Oh my goodness. And I respect that. I respect that power move. <laughs> yeah. Please wield wield that power uh, like a mighty swab sword. Uh, for listeners who might not know, why is the why is your district race historical already? Well, for so many reasons. I mean, we're first of all, 
this is the first time in the history of our Punjabi community and our Indo-Caribbean community here in New York City to have someone win a Democratic primary. Punjabis have run for office, Indo-Caribbeans have run for office before, but winning the primary has been the most difficult um, and I won, and that was just like already a really huge feat, something impossible in a district where like everyone was like, no one's going to vote for a South Asian woman. No one's going to vote for a progressive. There's no way you're going to win kind of disbelief. Um, so that's one thing. I'm also the first woman to win a Democratic primary here. Um, and now going into the general election, which is so much tougher because the general here, unlike other parts of New York City, determines our win because it's been a Republican stronghold for 12 years. Oh, my so God. We're, we're looking at, we also expanded the electorate um, more than in, in areas where the assembly district and the election district had a low voter turnout. We expanded that um, during the primary. So... There are a lot of really thing, amazing things to be to be proud of, um, and now we're hoping to do that again, but double the turnout this time around in general. It's almost this... like people will vote if there's somebody on the ticket that they actually believe in and who they feel like is speaking for them. Right. That That's the logic, right? But I also think historically when you have a set of disenfranchised voters who hadn't been engaged before, hadn't seen someone like their elected official before, hadn't even met their elected official or met a candidate before, going to convince them and giving them the will and the reason to vote is so incredibly important. That's why like, I do a lot of door knocking, a lot of meet and greets, a lot of chances for folks to meet and have a discussion with me because that brings value to their reason to come out and vote. Yesterday, we not, Steph and I actually knocked on a, on a door and a woman was like, you know, I'm not sure if I'm gonna vote. And I happened to, we just met in the middle because we, we split up the block. And I was like, hey, and stuff so was like, oh, Felicia's here. We just started a conversation and this voter um, doesn't, not sure she's going to vote in the general. And I was like, tell me more about that. So instead of telling her why she should vote for me, I was like, why don't you want to vote at all? Um, and she's like, well, the mayoral election isn't as competitive and we all know Eric Adams is going to win. And I just feel like there's no reason for me to go out and vote. And I was like, let me tell you about local level politics. Um, and so I had that conversation. What does city council do? Why that's important? We've had a compiled frustration for the last 12 years in representation and change. And she asked me straight up, she's like, listen, I have a child with a disability. What are you going to do for children with disabilities? And I was like, that's a great question. I'm a special ed teacher. So who do you think I'm going to center in City Hall when it comes to our education? It's going to be our unhoused population of youth. And it's also going to be our students with disability. And I talked about IEPs. I talked about busing. I talked about like the top three issues that I know children and parents are facing um, when it comes to their disability. And hopefully she's going to go out and vote November 2nd. But these are the conversations like one vote really matters. If there's a race where like one vote matters, it is this one. It is this one. That's something that I feel like um, is something seemingly so simple and often ignored in politics is politicians are constantly like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Or and it's a good thing asking, what are you looking for? What do you want? But broaching the topic of 
why don't you want to vote or just what are your feelings about government? Because mm -hmm. I feel like so many people's leaning into a certain, you know, right or left or blue or red is just, oh, I just have these internal feelings about politics that people kind of throw on me. And no one really asks people why, like, what do you think about this? Why do you think about this? And then that's going to open a completely different conversation mm -hmm. other than just what are you looking for? Or this is what I can do for you. It's just kind yeah. of bringing a different light to... Right, right. And it's so important to bring that different light to the conversation too because you're validating someone being isolated and erased from electoral process by asking them to share how they feel about not being involved. And that also informs you as someone who wants to be an elected official. Like, you don't want to make those same mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's... I didn't run to, to have bring more of the same. You know, mm -hmm. we want something more. Yeah. I, it's it's so wild how easy it is to forget when uh, when there isn't a super competitive race like higher up the ticket like how mm -hmm. important the lower on the ticket races are to right. actually having meaningful impact and change on your day to day life versus mm -hmm. I mean I'm I'm in Chicago uh, so there are a lot of people I know in Illinois who are like I don't vote because Chicago has turns everything blue my vote doesn't matter anyway blah blah mm -hmm. blah and it's like okay but like do you not vote for your alder person because right. small thing but like our neighborhood didn't have a park and a bunch of the families put there was a dilapidated house that was sitting on three lots and like now we have a brand new like park because everyone went to the alder person was like here's a thing that on a day-to-day -day basis can make an impact on my family's life that exactly. is small but like powerful in the grand scheme of absolutely the day-to-day yeah. Right. And that's the thing. It's 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 also kind of like civic engagement course, mini civic engagement course at every door knock. It's like, here's why you need to vote. Here's why I need you to be like, feel like this is urgent. You know, it's not like, oh, yeah, I'm just I'll go out if I go out. No, no, no. I need your like we need your vote. We need mm -hmm. this change. Like the urgency is so different in the general election here. And I think you're right. It's like it's a large part of it is being like, hey, you know, local level politics no matter how low to the ground it is, it's going to impact your everyday quality of life. I think more and more that has resonated with more and more people also after the last uh, 18 months of, mm -hmm. of like COVID and quarantine, because that was, right. that was how things were getting done was all on the local level. That's right. I gotta, I gotta jump back to, um, History. Uh, you said I, that I literally thought I literally was gonna be like no swaps. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to really dig in here. No pun intended. Um, yeah. No, you. This is a historic race, um, and you named off all the things. Uh, uh, first Punjabi, uh, Indo Caribbean, female, mm -hmm. democratic. Yeah. How does it? How does it feel being that? being the one person that kind of mm -hmm. seemingly kind of checking off all these firsts. Is that exciting? Is that intimidating? Is that because as, as you were saying that, I'm like, oh, my gosh, you're really you're achieving a lot here. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this. I was like, hmm, someone I remember seeing a show or I don't know what or maybe a TikTok video on Instagram. And it was like, take a moment to think about your ancestors and where they have gone and what they've done, whether it's good or bad or influential or whatever it is to make their mark to carry you here to this moment right now. 
and recognize that. And I've been thinking about it a lot. Like I feel like, and it helps keep me grounded almost because this is both an exciting responsibility. It is also a very intimidating responsibility because you are carrying um, your ancestors. You're carrying your history as you are moving towards something that has not been actually possible. Yeah. The fact that something is Im- someone has deemed this impossible and you made it possible, but you didn't do it by yourself. You did it with an excellent team and hard fo- hardworking volunteers and consistency mm-hmm. and pushing and pushing, but you made it possible. And you're on the road to make something that's also deemed impossible possible. It is a grave responsibility. And intimidating. It's incredibly intimidating because then you are now carrying all of this 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 weight of of people's feelings and hopes and dreams and their sadness and their trauma and their feelings of erasure. Um, and people are like, "Great, fix the system. We got one in there. Go ahead, fix it." <laughs> right? Yeah, and then and then it's after you get that, it's like, "Oh, now we're fine." It's like, "Oh no, no that was no, just no, no, no. That was just like if 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 I were to believe here that the GOP is gonna just disappear and disintegrate by my win, like that's really naive, right? Yeah, I did step one, and that is yeah. like dismantle uh, the leadership at the mm. top um, in city council. Now it's like, okay, we need something. Something else needs to happen because they're going to come back and they're going to come back full throttle because they're going to be angry, Mm -hmm. right? That this brown woman took their thing, (laughs) took their toy, and I'm not giving that that. shit back. I took Uh -uh. their toy and I'm not giving that shit back. You know, that's what it is. I love you talking about kind of uh, bringing your ancestors with you and that excitement, but also that sadness. Yeah. People think of history as kind of dead it's so long ago like it's yes. very separate and this is just a, a, one of many examples of living history of yeah. it is it is intrinsic and attached to us and history is things from the past are constantly in our present and our future yes. and keeping that in mind i think is so great and must help you think about what you want to do mm-hmm. constantly because of where you come from and what has happened to your community and all that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Wow, I'm really impressed and intimidated by you, and I am no. so excited. Oh my gosh, For please. Second. Can I vote? No. <laughs> I can't do that. You can't phone bank for us. <laughs> that is true. From wherever you live, listeners, from wherever you live. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I normally we would talk. We'll we're gonna table our normal our normal little chit chat about discoveries until the I mean, end I of think, the episode. Oh, oh okay. unless oh sure. oh I was gonna sure. say in honor or in like the uh, nature of stealing someone's toy. Oh yeah, that is true. <laughs> There's a lot of potential segues happening. There really is. Yeah, in the nature. Whatever well, way we want to go. In yeah. the nature of stealing someone's toy, uh, <laughs> yeah. Charles Darrow did not invent the board game of Monopoly. That was oh. Elizabeth uh, Maggie Phillips, and she it designed it. It was a woman. Yep. And hey. she designed it. It was an anti-capitalist woman who designed it in protest of monopolies, not to oh, symbolize the American dream. Where yes. she just taught all these children how to now monopoly. Yeah. Uh, but also how fickle they are. Regardless, yeah. uh, she That's sold true. it to Parker Brothers. Charles Darrow basically claimed it as his invention. Here we are. So 
you can plant your flag in anything you want and just decide that's that right. it's yours. Take whatever yeah. toys you want that's is right. apparently the lesson from history. Yeah. So what is something, Felicia, that you have discovered? Mm. Uh, I, I, I mean, I'm just going to lean into the vulnerability uh, of how I'm feeling in this, in the moment of the fact that like Saturday is the first time folks can vote. Folks have already started voting if they, if they uh, received an absentee ballot. Um, and something I discovered for my, to my, that someone helped me actually discover is yesterday we had a really, I felt like we had a really tough day on the campaign. And it was because I received more smear campaigning from Stephen Ross, who's a billionaire real estate mogul who does not want me to win and creates these really intense graphics and mailers. He's spending a total of $300,000 to make sure I do not win in this race. And then oh, you, I had, oh, you got him scared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then I had um, a New York One debate and I, my opponent called me dangerous. She said I was a dangerous person. And I was so shocked in that moment that she was going to be so nasty on TV. Um, and it's going to air tonight at 7 o'clock. Um, that I... Everybody Google it. It's already out. <laughs> right. I almost had a moment where it's like I was um, frozen in time. I began, I began to feel flustered. Um, and I, it made me realize and that folks are going to, and this is true of history, that in history, what people of color have been told that they do not have value, um, that they are dangerous, that they cannot have a seat at the table, um, that they are three-fifths of a man, of a person. And when you hear that constantly and you see the devalue of yourself constantly over and over again, whether it's on a mailer or someone's telling it to you or whoever it is that's like taking space in your mind, you have this defeatist mindset. And someone told me, they, they like literally shook me. They're like, listen, this sucks. You could cry it out right now. Go ahead and do that. But know that the worst thing that could possibly happen is you feel defeat. And that discovery to me made me think about my ancestors and made me think about my history because we only know defeat. You know, we only know the possibility of trying and hope and the idea of defeat closer to us because it is our history. And in the process of making it, you have to like untrain your mind. You know, we, we have the sense of fixed mindset. We might have the sense of feeling defeat and we can't allow people who tell us otherwise to control how we feel about our own victories. And it is so hard to unlearn that mindset. It's so hard to now feel a sense of victory when you feel defeat, but they're doing that on purpose and it's working. You can't let it work. And so my discovery yesterday was like trying to push myself out of this mindset that I have this privilege of being educated, of going to college, of having a job, uh, having had a job and a salary to running for office. And that is my privilege that only a few popular people in the world have. And if I have this experience and still have this history of knowing that my people have been defeated, I have to rise up above that, but I don't have to do it by myself. Um, 
I could do it with people, I could do it with allies. Um, and that is one of the hardest discoveries. Um, easier said than done. You guys heard it here first. Felicia Singh discovered <laughs> the power of positive thinking and vulnerability yes. and community. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> wow, those are those are some big things. All right. Yeah. <laughs> those are some big flags. Yes. To plant. Yeah. That's right. Like, That's right. Probably one of the most important discoveries uh, that we will ever communicate on this podcast. To be fair. <laughs> oh gosh. I we're just gonna keep. We're just gonna keep. All of your discoveries are important. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Uh, we're just going to keep giving you like burdens to bear by just being, like, the <laughs> most exciting, the most amazing. <laughs> I'm sorry. Is this a lot of pressure? Uh, I mean, you basically set up a segue for us because yeah. I uh, am because I'm in on the secret. Cass doesn't know, but like I know some of what you're what you you've brought to tell us about today. And I know that it touches on your ancestors yes. and what and the defeat that they uh, that they felt and the oppression that they felt. So I'm gonna let mm -hmm. you take it away and tell us tell us a story, Felicia. Oh my goodness. Okay, I put on my glasses for those of you who, <laughs> just so you know, that's like my thinking is going on mm -hmm. my like brains turning on. Podcasting is a visual medium. Felicia yeah. has her glasses on. Let's yes. get to it. That's right. Um, so I'm here to talk about um, indentured servitude. And it's a part of history that's actually been left out of the storytelling of what happened exactly after the emancipation of slavery. Um, and what essentially happened was the British was like, how am I going to be able to make a profit off of people for free or somewhat free? Um, and create this idea that's not slavery, but similar. So indentured servitude was, was created. And what ended up happening was the British sailed to India and China and parts of the Middle East and created this idea that we are going to have you work for seven hours a week. You'll get paid. And after your indentured servitude of about, I think it was, seven years, um, you get to have a plot of land where we take you. Folks who were taking this journey across the Kalapani, which is like the black waters, and these are folks who had never ex uh, explored outside of India, went on this boat, um, traveled across the sea to Guyana, um, and were offered this idea of a new place, a new home, a job, um, they on purpose recruited more men than women which then resulted to and this is a trigger warning for any listeners it resulted in um, rape and actually the murder of many women and now we've seen through history domestic violence um, and suicide rates in guyana are one of the highest in the world um, and to me it, it comes back to this date of indentureship um, but it would be seven hours of labor for 20 cent, 24 cents a day and eight cents is allocated for food. You were sleeping in the same um, quarters that ex-slaves had slept in. Um, and what the British did was they allowed Indo, uh, Indians and the Chinese to keep their language on purpose as to not have conversations with Africans on Guyana so they wouldn't 
come together and turn against the British. And the British... It's like the one time Brits were like letting people have their language and it was still yeah, underhanded. It was in still, <laughs> yes, it was still a part of maintaining power. Um, in fact, you know, Guyana didn't really receive uh, independence from British until the 1940s. I believe it was 1947 or no, actually the 1960s, the 1960s, um, 1947 was India, but the 1960s. And that is such a really, it tells you a lot of what happened because British owned the education system. It owned the system of religion as well, where if you were Hindu, you had to convert to Christianity in order to work in the government. So if your family wanted any sense of upward mobility, you then had to convert, which was so devastating to hear about and see. So when you go to Guyana, you do have folks who are, who are Christian, you have folks who are Hindu, who are Muslim, or several religions, but a lot of that history is known to have been that you had to convert to be that, that you were something else, you believed in something else before. I think it's really interesting because my grandfather, um, he wrote a diary, uh, which I think actually, I feel like should actually be in a museum. I don't know why we haven't like donated it or like shared it in some capacity because we don't have very many written narratives of what happened on the ship, what happened in the, the, the transport, what happened in Guyana. And legend goes, or based on his diary, he was actually a soldier, soldier on this ship. Um, and a part of me has had to wrestle with what that meant. Like you were part of convincing people to come to a new land. You also took that risk mm -hmm. as someone who believed that the British was going to give you a pathway to success um, and, and money. And came, worked the farms, also participated in indentured servitude. Um, and he ended up meeting a woman named Mariah, who was there from the Spanish colonization and had lived in Guyana. And they fell in love and they got married and they had children. She apparently eventually left him and married an African. Um, and our families joined anyway, despite that. And it was really, it's a really interesting story to me because we don't know what Mariah looks like, but we know that she definitely existed. There's no picture of her. Um, there's stories of her, you know, being brown skin, brown eyes, brown hair, um, but that's it. Uh, and we also don't own that part of our history of her being a Spaniard. You know, we say we have Spaniard in our blood, but we don't like, it's, just, it's not centered in mm -hmm. our practices. New sponsor alert and a brief history lesson. Did you all know that the use of hops as a staple ingredient in beer dates back to early drug laws in Bohemia? Before then, folks were blissfully brewing with whatever tasty botanicals they had on hand. Based in Madison, Wisconsin, Herbiary Brewing is bringing back the noble tradition of hopless brews. Learn more about their fermented folklore and where to find them at herbiary.com. That's H-E-R-B-I-E-R-Y.com. For any Indo-Caribbean people, they don't have a language to go fall back on because eventually everyone had to learn English. And when you we think about our placement here in New York City 
and where we are and how we identify, there's a lot of isolation in the Indo-Caribbean communities because we look Indian, we watch Indian movies, we eat Indian food with a West Indian twist on it, and we don't speak language. And some of us have never been to India because we don't know who our family was. There's mm-hmm. no record of who they were. Our names were changed when we came to the West Indies. Names were spelled differently or last names were taken and replaced. So it's a lost history. It's, it's a known history and it's a deeply lost one. I am so privileged to know that my forefathers came from Punjab, India, um, and they had a language and I know the history because it's literally written down, um, which is why journaling is so close to me. Like I love writing in my journal because I know this is history that someone's going to read and carry one day and know mm. about. Um, but not everyone has that, that yeah. are from the West Indies. I, I don't think a lot of people realize that Guyana is, is mm-hmm. primarily a, uh, Indo and African mm-hmm. ethnicity and backgrounds. We yes. think of South America. We think of right. Spanish speaking. Spanish speaking, yeah. Yes, but the demographics of Guyana are mm-hmm. an anomaly yes. in that. And right. talking about that, it, it's almost like your history just stops at a certain mm-hmm. point. If you don't have that written history, mm-hmm. it is. It just stops at where. British brought people over for indentured indentured servitude. They took Mm -hmm. away their communication. They Mm -hmm. isolated them even right next to these different communities. Mm -hmm. And I never thought about that then coming to America and New York and then being further separated from that. And yeah, that isolation of language, history. Yeah. That must be strange feeling Indian but not having mm-hmm. connection to India for mm-hmm. so many. Right. Yes, it is. It is. And like there's almost like an identity crisis and some people go through. It's like, who am I? How do I want to identify? Do I want to identify as being Guyanese? Do mm-hmm. I want to identify as being South Asian? Do I want to identify as being Indian? Mm-hmm. It really just depends on the person. Some yeah. people don't even use the phrase Indo-Caribbean. Um, I use it a lot because it's both Indian and Caribbean, and I think that's important and Mm -hmm. substantial. There's also bringing back the word Kuli, and Kuli was a term used, it was a derogatory term that's equivalent to the N-word, and it's what the British called indentured servants. So you didn't have a name, it was like, hey Kuli, come here. Mm. And trying to reclaim that word to remember our ancestors, trying to really keep them in the present that mm-hmm. we are no longer Kulis, but this is where we came from. This is the yeah. word. I personally don't use it. I think it, it, to me in my mind, it's, it's, it's the same as using the N word, which I don't either use either. Um, it's a reminder of colonization. It's a reminder of genocide. It's a reminder of, of gender-based violence and so many things to me. I do work for organizations that have reclaimed the word and like have merch with the word on it that I'm like, nah, not buying that. Um, <laughs> but, but, and I love them. And I think like, it's so great because it's, it's, it's very similar to the narratives around using the N word too, where it's like, I'm reclaiming this word, it's mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and it's power to people. I think like that is the amazing thing about re reclaiming history is that you mm-hmm. can do it in your own way that yeah. makes it comfortable for who you are. Um, but I think what we're we're seeing in Guyana even today is racial deep racial tensions. 
amongst our Indo-Caribbeans and our Afro-Caribbeans in Guyana. And I, I wish we were, we took a moment to stop and think about who caused this tension, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's actually the British. Yeah. The British intentionally caused this tension. Wow, what a shocker. Right? Exactly. Coming in and causing mayhem. Right, exactly. And it's just like, I, people are like, no, it's way more complicated. It's not that. It's this. It's they do that. And, you know, a lot of finger pointing, a lot of misconceptions about each other. And I think, and, you know, in Guyana, we have this word uh, called Dugla, where you're mixed, you're Afro and Indo-Caribbean. And even that word, I'm just like, oh, God, what? we got to get rid of these words, right? Because it's kind of like saying you're biracial. But to me, Dugla just seems like such a heavier word to that. Um, but Guyana has really beautiful, beautiful and rich history. Um, we actually have less people who are Guyanese living Guyana living in Guyana today. There are more people who live in the United States and Canada than they do live in, in Guyana um, that are Guyanese. That that is a part of history that I wish we talked more about in schools. Yeah. That's a part of history I wish we we shared more. Um, but we don't and that's why I was so proud as an educator we we adapted the common core um, standards of teaching and one of the curricula was sugar change the world and I was so moved that I as a Guyanese woman I was teaching about my own history to children um, and I suggest everyone get a chance to read sugar change the world it's literally the history of sugar canes and sugar and how indentured servitude um, and slavery played a large role in the luxury of sugar that we have today. I feel like most people probably only know like what I know mm-hmm. about Guyana, which is that the the mountain from up is inspired by a mountain on the border mm-hmm. of uh, Guyana, That's Venezuela, right. and Brazil. Yeah, and then you know that good old cheery factoid of history of the Jim Jones mass, mass suicides. Yes. Uh, it's like that's yes. that's what. That's what people might know, and it's, and and the but like the uh, the impact that sugar has had on uh, colonialism, capitalism, like mm-hmm. everything, and the mm-hmm. and the role that Guyana specifically played in sugar. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I I didn't know much about Guyana. I, I didn't know much about South America. I didn't take Spanish in high school. And so part of the Spanish curriculum was like learning about South America. And if you Mm -hmm. don't take Spanish. Apparently, then you just don't get, you don't learn about an entire continent. If you didn't. Seriously. You don't really learn about Central America and you don't learn about South America if you didn't take Spanish. It is almost this lost continent to me, which is very... It deeply embarrassing and also <laughs> I'm very upset with I don't know just Iowa teaching history yeah, no no uh, don't, don't even it's, it's a United States system issue because yeah. I, I remember I did pre-college program at Columbia cost us a fortune to do that and mm. I was like oh this is gonna definitely get me into college mm. I didn't know it was the first person in my family to go to college yeah. and I took a prose writing course <clears throat> and the professor who was teaching it, I was, he was like, where's your family from? Tell me more about your history and who you are. And I was like, my mom's from Guyana. And he asked me, where is Guyana? And I was like, what? 
And so then from that day on, every time I talked about Guyana, I was like, Guyana, which is in South America, I know it's Venezuela, <laughs> yeah. you know, <clears throat> is on the border, blah, blah, blah. It's yeah. a coastal country. Yeah, um, let me give you the landmarks. The landmarks gosh. are countries that you know. Right. It's like right. entire countries yeah, are my landmarks. And it's so funny because if you were to look at a map of Guyana, it's a huge, it's, it's a tiny country, but it's also huge in the fact of like most of it is the Amazon. Mm-hmm. Most of it our indigenous communities live on, and it's the Amazon. Yeah, and beautiful, only a small un- portion. Like virgin Am- like Yeah, virgin Amazon. And like you, you've got a small portion of Guyana in which people live and you know have have built on and like you know live around but most of it is the amazon i I think our biggest worry right now is that you know developers will come in and start cutting down those trees and looking for oil and whatever discoveries they can find here which is always dangerous to our most marginalized communities i wouldn't have learned anything about guyana if i hadn't researched it myself if it Mm -hmm. hadn't been for self-study which is why we we often ask our guests, like, do you even like history or what's your experience with history? Because right. a lot of people don't like it or mm-hmm. they like a certain aspect of it, which they may not think of as history. Like, I think we had someone talk about like comic books and the history of like that has a history. That has yeah, a history that's so in, true. like gender uh, yes. norms and all that stuff. It's everything is connected. And if you don't have an interest in history or self-study, there's so much that we're not going to get out of our school systems. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and if totally you're not, great. and if you don't have like the spark to go more than one layer deep, because for example, if you if you Google Guyana, it tells you that it was dis- that it was sort of discovered by Columbus or discovered oh, by Europeans, God. and it's right. like, I'm sorry, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> there are indigenous people there. It's not just that like. Europe was like, hey, there's a place we yeah. haven't been yet. Let's go there. And now we've discovered you. Right. You know, we've mentioned Columbus twice, and I have to say that my first smear mailer in this general election was about the Christopher Columbus statue in Columbus Circle and that I was going to get rid of it. And it was a it was a, a smear ad mailer sent to Democrats who put you know and and like just to put the fear on italians that i was going to take something from them so and on new york one yesterday they talked he asked me a question about christopher columbus and the statue and i was like are we serious right now are we still on this (laughs) like i'm not a fan of it but we got more important stuff to talk about (laughs) also sorry italians new york has already stolen pizza as a whole (laughs) so (laughs) That's what that's what we're taking. I'm just from. like, listen, Italians have other prominent Italians who like made a positive impact on the United States in New York. And who the and who the nation who entered the country of Italy actually liked and respected during their time. Right, exactly. So it's just been a really interesting experience to see these like really aesthetics of our history mm-hmm. be the the changing point for moving the vote even yeah you know history and i agree when when it's like history is both learned but i think i i want us to to all get in a place where we're like recording our own histories as much as we can before it's gone and all history 
can be taught with a slant and often is and mm-hmm. the the uh, I, I idolization of Columbus just goes to the power of mythos and mm-hmm. how this is our American history and when our first episode we talked about Sybil Ludgate who Ludington. essentially Ludington oh my gosh <laughs> that was my topic too I know Sybil Ludington who did uh, a midnight ride longer than Paul Revere. Paul Revere didn't make his final destination mm. and they didn't end up winning that battle, I don't think. But he is who we have built that mythos around mm. and we have built up this story and this hero. And if a 15-year-old girl can supersede that, then we've lost a part of our American heritage. <sighs> And it's like, but the, that should be like that is the American story. Like the like the real American story are people people of marginalized communities and people whose voices had been cut out or left out, taking yeah. their stand, taking their like using their voice, making an impact. Like that that is that is what we should focus around. But instead, we're like, I'm a buy up park place. Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. It's really uh, frustrating. I have a beautiful segue uh, because we're talking about statues. And so I, uh, I, d- I did a little research uh, on a certain statue that's in Guyana. And it's Hubert oh. Nathaniel Critchlow, whose uh, statue is in, is in I think, the, the, le- like the legislate. The, oh, my God, words are very difficult right now. The I understand. Capital, the legislature, the par- parliament. That's the word. Parliament. Uh huh. We got yes. there. We got there. I had to just Woo! remember Britain, uh, and I got to parliament. Um, because Hubert Nathaniel, and also because I know that uh, labor rights are so close to your heart uh, and mm. mine, and I usually make labor movement things about Chicago history because I'm selfish, um, and and I love Chicago labor history. But here's. Here's some Guyana labor history and world labor history that started in Guyana. And oh, it's yes. Hubert Nathaniel Critchlow was the father of trade unions. He was the first oh. man in British Guyana to formalize labor negotiations after founding the first official trade union in uh, mm. not just in Guyana, but in all of the Caribbean. So, so we're, and we're not super far away timeline. Like, mm-hmm. where are we, Guyana? When are we, nineteen seventeen? Yeah. Um, right. Which, like, folks have grandparents who were right. a, a, around in nineteen seventeen. Around or born? Yes. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So this is the British Guyana Labor Union, and uh, yeah, I just thought it was. I had never. I don't. You know, I like have zero knowledge. Zero. I figured I was you like, oh, something. there's a statue. I'm like, so, I don't. <laughs> so maybe no Felicia yeah. knows about him. Um, yeah, he was. Uh, I mean, he mostly he worked a lot of like small, underpaying, horrible condition jobs, uh, like you do. And but at the time that he formed the labor, the trade union, he was a dock worker. So he actually like had experience as like an engineering apprentice at an iron foundry and wow but but for some reason like that wasn't reliable work so he kind of worked a bunch of low-paying jobs like cigar maker bottle washer 
right. gold miner. Um, I mean, talking about running into Guyana and stealing their riches, Guyana actually has had, we did find gold there successfully. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and then, he, yeah, he was a dock worker for, bringing it back to sugar, the the one of the large sugar plantation conglomerates that was operating mm -hmm. out of Guyana. But he, his whole, his whole shebang was even before he formalized the trade union, he organized and led his dock workers in a protest against a strike against their working conditions in 1906. Ah, so wow. he didn't formalize the union for like another 11 years. But in 1906, they march. The police, of course, fire into the crowd because policing. Uh, <laughs> That, but despite despite the violence and despite uh, everything else, he organizes the same march like a year later, and uh, both marches and the ones that he continued to organize, similarly to like what we were talking about with Guyana not wanting the laborers to unite in any capacity, mm -hmm. not letting them speak the same language. There was a huge social unrest at the time that he was organizing and these marches actually united the urban working classes and rural rural estate workers against colonial officers and all of the conglomerates and company management capitalizing on all their hard labor yeah so oh, we cut similar to today okay. yeah <laughs> yeah uh cut to cut to like 11 12 years later when uh he f officially forms the movement and the uh and the British Guyana Labor Union. Mm -hmm. He's still helming protests. He's eventually, of course, fired from his job. And of course, nobody mm -hmm. wants at the docks wants to hire him. Right. Because he's a rabble rouser. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the at the birth of the British Guyana Labor Union, the membership is like 13,000 right off the gate, where I did the math because the only time I enjoy math is when it's like in the context of history. Oh, I love that. I'm oh, like, just like, oh, 13,000. Is that a lot of people? It sounds like a lot of people, but I live in an enormous city where that wouldn't be a ton of people. Right. Hey, Cass. Yes, now? Would you say you wear your love of Iowa on your sleeve? You know what? I, I would actually. Is it because you regularly shop at Raygun? Oh, you mean the greatest store in the universe? The most important clothing store the earth has ever seen since the early Mesozoic era? The one that started in Iowa and now has stores throughout the Midwest? Mm-hmm, that's the one. Yeah, I do own a lot of Raygun products, specifically ones that brag about Iowa. So yeah, I guess I literally wear my love of Iowa on my sleeve. Cool, just checking. Did you know that this podcast is sponsored by Raygun and that Raygun has stores in Des Moines, Chicago, Cedar Rapids, Iowa City, Kansas City, Omaha, or you can shop online at raygunsite.com? Yes. Yes, I know all of that. Of course you do. Use promo code SHARE-YOU-LATER to save on your next order. You don't need to be obsessed with Iowa to shop there and enjoy their stuff. But it never hurts. <sighs> That's raygunsite.com. Promo code SHARE-YOU-LATER. So at the time of the formation of the labor union, uh, the, the population of Guyana is like just under 300,000. So roughly like one in 25 people are in, mm -hmm. are part of this union, are part of this trade union in the mm -hmm. entire country. He's credited with a lot of, a lot of things or like a lot of um, causes 
He has his own national holiday on July 3rd. It's Critchlow Day, and the, he earned that holiday, if you will, uh, in 1922 after introducing a rent restriction bill before the Legislative Council and getting that bad boy passed. He, I just feel like a lot of like his efforts kind of dovetail nicely with things that are important to you, um, like addressing increasing unemployment and yes. uh, rising That's consumer right. prices That's and right. rent restriction and uh, uh, national health insurance, old age pensions, a girls' industrial training school, um, and a children's court, which I know what it means but it's fun to just think of it as kids holding court I know, that, right <laughs> like i it's like so the way interesting. i like so the way it is in my imagination yeah no no when you said that i was like really uh but <laughs> but um i i always think like when when we win i really would love to go back to guyana because the last time i was there was 1995 or 94 um, and I'd never went back again. And both my grandparents have since then passed. Um, but to go back and just see the country in a way that is going to, I'm going to have a different lens. I'm going to have a different lens in history. Mm-hmm. Um, being the first Guyanese person to win an elected seat here in New York City um, and near a uh, Chinese people or Indo-Caribbeans have been in New York City since the 1970s, 1980s. Um, and to go back to Guyana and see my history um, and the history of my people uh, and visit par- Parliament or like just walk around Georgetown and and really just see communities and, and meet families, I think that that would be so special, like really, really special. Well, and like Guyana itself has probably changed so much in so much those like 25 yeah. 30 years because yes. yes considering the fact that like what would we independence six in the 60s correct mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh that just i mean that's the, right and the 90s what a time what a wild time yeah <laughs> i mean it's it's so interesting because when we have the first president chetty jagan um his family lives in new york and i've met his granddaughter uh, before, which is really, it's just like, you have this piece of history sitting right, I literally could not stop staring at her, I was just like, I know who you are, <laughs> and this is really cool, and I'm, I'm sure she gets looked at all the time, and like, she gets invited to things, cutting, cutting ribbon cuttings, and you know, all of those stuff, and I, I think it's, it's, it must be such an amazing part of history to have in you, um, and I would love to just like sit and meet with her again and be like, hey, like this is this is two parts of history that have have merged in mm-hmm. our time. Um, and I think that's what makes this urgency that I have in like making sure we do everything we can to win because there's so much at stake. Uh, well, when you when you win and when you yes. go back, uh, okay. you'll have to take a picture with the statue that statue of i want to see it yeah and i also want to like learn more like i want to i wonder if um chetty chagon wrote about it in his autobiography like did he you know i didn't get a chance to finish reading it but i'm sure there's a conversation about labor what it's like to to talk about labor post-british colonialism yeah um and what that looks like for people so i would i now it just makes me want to read the book to be like did he mention <laughs> yeah even if he didn't mention critchlow like he's got it he's got to mention 
the labor yeah. unions because like historically right. trade unions especially have had like really yes. close ties to whatever power whoever and whatever mm-hmm. party is in power mm-hmm. um not always for the good of their membership <laughs> and the general population of laborers right. but uh i i was also I, I was interested when i found when i found out about critchlow because i also had a i had a decently hard time finding more information about right. him. Not surprised. Despite the fact that like his work influenced a whole era in the country's history, but also mm-hmm. in like trade unions in the Caribbean as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um because like labor unions, especially in Guyana, but also like kind of everywhere, uh play in everywhere like impacted heavily by uh colonialism. Um right. They have such an important role in anti-colonial movements. Yes, especially yes. especially in areas that the laborers are all are mostly all descendants from slaves and indentured ser- like indentured indentured servants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The organization of their ancestors. That's the wrong word, but you guys know what I'm saying. I we know get what you're it. Saying. But yeah, I just, uh, Nathaniel Hubert, or wait, I flipped that. Hubert Nathaniel Critchlow. Also, I just love a good name. I love a mm-hmm. Hubert. That's a, I was going to say, that's a great name. Hubert. <laughs> Give me a Hubert every day of the week. Uh, he, oh, he, other cool things he did. He was instrumental in obtaining an eight-hour workday for, for uh, dock laborers. He pushed for universal adult suffrage and, like, bringing the women of Guyana in on any of the labor representation and legislative representation in Guyana. Um, He worked Hmm. in, like, prisoner's aid and, like, ex-servicemen aid and old age pension uh, movements and public Hmm. works and, yeah. So he did a lot. He was, like, really busy and he... he, (laughs) Similar to reading Felicia's bio, reading about him made me feel like I don't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, don't say that. You, We all make a mark in history in some capacity. Whatever that is for us, we discover at the end. Well, I'm very curious what inspired you to run for local office. Oh gosh, so many things. <laughs> um, historically in this district, we have you know, a large demographic of our Bangladeshi community, a large demographic of a Spanish, of our Spanish, Hispanic community. Uh, Punjabi, Indo-Caribbean is a smaller population here on this side of the district. Um, We have uh, a large Chinese population um, as well. And when you look at our civic associations and our block associations and our community boards, they don't necessarily always reflect the demographic of the community um and i always wondered why and then i learned the more more and more about like white supremacist structures and like power and who creates those those decision making process for us locally and it was no one really that liked me or my my neighbors um and i was like you know what i'm gonna try i'm gonna try and get involved in a place that raised me in the best way i can um, and so I attended my first my first civic association in the in my neighborhood of Ozone Park, and it was right after I came back from serving the United States uh, in the Peace Corps. 
and I came back and I was like, okay, I'm just going to get started. Similarly to how I did in China, where you meet community members, you you have conversations with strangers that you don't know uh, the best way you can, and you for, for, you find common ground and things that you know are important to both of you. Um, I did that here, went to the Civic Association. No one believed I lived in my community. I had folks who were like, are you a lawyer? Are you a journalist? Um, like, why are you here? And I'm like, I live here, hello. <laughs> Um, and then I decided to I, I, I decided that I was going to run for vice president. It was an open seat. And I was like, I'm just going to run for it. My first time, I've been here a couple of months. Let me just try. I did, and I ran unopposed. And I worked alongside folks with different socioeconomic, um, not socioeconomic, uh, different, spec, uh, play, different point of views when it comes to their political spectrum. Uh, Republicans, Democratic moderates, conservatives, and we did community forums, we we did community cleanups, um, and it was a really hard but great experience. The more I got deeper and deeply involved in my community, the more I was like, oh, we, there needs to be something that happens here um, that is representative truly of what people need and desire and want. Um, and I decided to run for office. I mean, there were many other stories that propelled me for it. It took me a long time to decide to run. Um, I had to really consider leaving my job and leaving healthcare and leaving all of my salary um, to run, to take a chance. Because it's a, it's a gamble. It mm -hmm. is a literal gamble. Yeah. It is, everything is on the line, you know? You are exposed to the utmost exposure. Um, my dad just brought up the mail and I have another smear mailer that I'm looking at right now. And I'm just like, you know, this is, this is, this is who people are saying I am and I'm not. And it's like really, it's really sad. It's, it's like, you've lived and grown up in your community and then there's a person called Jeffrey Reb and Stephen Ross who can't point out Ozone Park on a map and decide your fate. Um, so those are the reasons that I'm running. I mean, and still pushing forward. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's what, that's what sets you ahead is, you know, where Ozone Park is. It's right. where you live. It's what mm -hmm. you're fighting for. And the people there see and know that you are from here. Oh, yeah. That's what frustrates me is when people who have no connection to some place are pushing so hard to keep people mm -hmm. down in mm -hmm. that place. And that's the history of, many of our examples of America, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, that's why the labor unions are so strong here because there's history of them being pulled down and abused. And yeah. it's just, that is, that's unfortunately our history. And it's like, people are trying to change that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's also important, like to what you said about the sacrifices that you have mm -hmm. had to make in order to pursue this dream and like run mm -hmm. are noble sacrifices, but also the structure, the way that our, the way that our system works is it's really, most people can't make those sacrifices. Like we, mm -hmm. we, we say anyone can run for office, but it is so prohibitive not, oh to run God, for yeah. office. It is so hard. Unless you already come from like a family with money and wealth yes. and privilege yes. and, and your voice is already amplified. And then it's kind of yeah. like, you're not who we need running for office. 
right. but that's who it's that's who it's the easiest it's not a sacrifice for them no as much it's a given yeah you know i come from a place that's deeply full of political royalty um my current state senator his father was our congressman and he was one of the most respected congressmen like ever you know we have schools named after him bridges uh hospitals urgent cares named after his father and then he was city council member then he became state senator then my assembly member her mother was my assembly member and as well i have a third grade photograph with her when i visited albany and now she's assembly member and then my current council member was president of the civic i was vice president of and he was 24 years old and he was just he's a white man and he decided i'm gonna run for office with a zero experience um because i look real good in a suit because <laughs> i look really good in a suit honestly i um, think that's a lot of people's like i've got a great smile and i look good in a suit and yeah, i just want to so wave and have my it. picture taken and honestly that's what folks said they said you know we voted for him because he is charming and he you know how was charismatic um and he is our he's been our council member for 12 years so this is the type of system that people, a type of history that we're trying to change and make different and look more reflective of the communities here. Um, but it's just, you know, it's really something. Well, Felicia, can I say that you are charming and charismatic and have, <laughs> but you also have the the community aspect yes. and you have everything else to back that up. Right. Mm -hmm. I think you'd look great in a suit, but that's not all you are. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yes, and then some. Yes. Uh, for, for our listeners outside of uh, New York, uh, and because we discussed our geographic shortcomings with Guyana <laughs> and how people don't know that where Guyana is, yeah. um, how would you how would you describe to somebody outside New York the boundaries of your district? Um, oh God. Okay, so it's like so first things first, everybody I think everybody knows where Queens is. Everyone knows where Queens is, I hope. If you don't get a map, Google. <laughs> then I would uh, go all the way to the bottom of Queens, because that's where we are. You're gonna find Rockaway Peninsula, which is mm -hmm. very long piece of island looking part of New York um, or a part of Queens. And we have, I, my district encompasses the entire west side of the entire Rockaway Peninsula. So I have a large portion of my district is literally the beach that tourists go to during the summer and enjoy. It's like one of the best beaches in New York State. Um, and then North of that is Woodhaven. We have a large park, Forest Park, um, that encompasses this district. And then you have Ozone Park, which is on the border of Brooklyn. Um, it, we have about 13 neighborhoods, uh, but it's all the way to the bottom of South Queens on the west side. There you go. Uh, I think the first time that I, I think that I know where Ozone Park is because of a book I read recently. Uh, what book? The City We Became by N.K. Yeah. Jemison. Okay, I don't know. That. It's uh, very good. And it's, I feel like if you actually live in New York or have New York City and you're in like your history, uh, yeah. you would enjoy it even more than I did. But I, I 
living in a big city also appreciated it it's like a it's like really interesting kind of sci-fi realism it's like a fantastical Mm. realism thing where the city is personified in these like heroes who basically have to fight for it and there's a scene that happens in ozone park and i looked up where ozone park was when i when i was yeah self-study self-study love it and ozone park like historically is called ozone park because of the way that the wind picks up from the from the ocean from the coast into this area and there's amazing wind here that happens uh just like it feels good you could actually smell the ocean from here seagulls fly up here as well um and the wind there's it's always like a nice breeze because of the ocean coming north um so that's why it's called ozone park and like always get a great like yeah. Instagram windswept hair look. Like, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> everyone gets their Beyonce moment. <laughs> and history, like this is this is where this is John Gotti territory. This is like where Mafia was the heaviest um, in Queens, at least. And so we've got the Gambino family, and we have um, the John Gotti family here in Ozone Park, and they still live here. If you, if you want recently. mafiosos and a nice, like, uh, sea spray Seriously. in your curls. <laughs> Come on down, Ozone Park. <laughs> that's going to be their new billboard. <laughs> that's my new commercial. I should have just shot my campaign video with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, my goodness. I thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Best of luck with the remainder of the campaign. Thank you so uh, much. We're going to try and get this episode out early so that it is out before election day if only 24 hours before yes Uh, anything hopefully a lot of people in your district are taking advantage of the fact that they can uh, vote early and absentee but if you haven't or if you're still on the fence about voting go out and vote and that's not just for that's not just for new york that's everyone's elections pay attention (laughs) to your local elections that's right uh, they make a difference. They do. And if you are listening and you want to get involved on our campaign via phone banking or door knocking, you can phone bank from any state, anywhere in the world. In fact, um, all you need is a laptop and maybe even a phone if you wanted that. But you can find out details of how and get to get involved with our campaign at Felicia2021.com. I love it so much. And you'll be working. And if you get involved in the campaign, you might be working not only with Felicia, but with one of my very best friends. Yes. uh, Who is Felicia's campaign manager. That's correct. I think that's all she wrote. If you, Felicia, so that's how people can get involved in your campaign. Are there other places that people can find and follow you? And Yes. Um, We have Instagram at Felicia Singh 2021. We are on Twitter at fsing underscore NYC and Facebook Felicia Singh for City Council. Another fun fact, uh, this City Council election is poised to bring back a majority female City Council in New York. So another historical. Another historical feat. Yes, exactly. Just more historical pressure. More? Just just more pressure. It's fine. It's fine. I'll be okay. (laughs) Yes. History. It burdens us uh, <laughs> in so many ways. Yeah. Both making it and breaking it. But Hell yeah. uh, but it also makes us stronger. We believe in you. You can find you. more about Felicia and more about us at Shared Pod on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to send us any questions. 
questions, corrections, or suggestions, you can send those to sharedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Of course, there's always a bunch of other links in the doobly-doo about different ways to support us. And uh, also, Felicia, you will find those below in your show notes. And we love you. We're so sorry to leave you, but we'll be back soon. Until next time. Share you later.